Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm extremely excited to be chatting with another Drive Through Records alum, Mr. Rob Freeman, guitarist, co-singer, and primary songwriter for the band Hidden in Plain View. My first memory of hearing Hidden in Plain View was with the Valencia guys on tour with them back in the early 2000s. I think I actually had a brief exchange with Rob back then at one point about potentially playing some shows together. Rob owns and works at Audio Pilot Studio and Production as a record producer, recording various up-and-coming artists. I was just looking at their website and the studio looks like an absolutely beautiful space to work in, so if you're in need of some production, you can contact them directly on their site. Rob has produced albums for Hit the Lights, Armor for Sleep, Hidden in Plain View, Parade the Day, Thief Club, as well as many others. I really appreciate him for taking the time to chat with me today. Hidden in Plain View's record, Life and Dreaming, is one of my favorite records of all time and one that I revisit quite often. We talk about that particular time period in his life amongst other things involving production and exercise for mental health. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Rob Freeman. What's up, dude? How are you doing, Rob? Good are to see you, man. My, are you getting my audio? I am, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to turn my camera here. I have a little tripod I can up on. For sure. Perfect. Sounds great. Are you in Pilot Studios now? I am. Red. How was your weekend? It was good, man. How about you? It's, it looks like you had a good weekend. You had a birthday? I had my birthday on Friday, so I took, a, I, kinda, I took Friday off and, you know, just made the most of it. It was awesome. Red. That's awesome, man. Happy belated birthday. Thanks, dude. So where are you out of? I'm in Kansas. Well, right now I'm in Lawrence and I'm from Kansas City. So those two are different states right next to each other. So Lawrence yeah. is about 45 minutes from Kansas City. I'm sure you've played both areas that's quite the, a bit. That's the, that's the, uh, the Get Up Kids hometown area, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Before COVID, my partner and I, we would go out to brunch and stuff. And we always would see Matt Pryor and his family because they still live uh-huh. here. That's just, whenever we, we actually played Lawrence a few times and I remember we'd always like look for them. <laughs> that was our Oh, thing. nice. Yeah. 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 I mean, some they're around. That's the thing. Like Jim, he lives in KC. He works for a nonprofit up there. And then the drummer, Ryan, he owns a coffee shop slash bar here called the Bourgeois Pig. And he, here. yeah. And my fiance, she does hair and he gets his hair cut at the same place. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Right on Mass Street, which is like the downtown strip of Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah, so they're around. We see them quite a bit. That was a really weird story. Maybe you can help me out with this. When we played in Kansas City, there was a surf shop 
mm-hmm. in downtown. And it just didn't make any sense to me because you're in the middle of the country, nowhere near like, <laughs> like the ocean. And I can't yeah. imagine the business lasted very long, but I, I've always wondered if like, if I like hallucinated that or if that actually existed at one point. No, that actually happened. You didn't hallucinate. There was a shark's surf shop right on mass. And I'm pretty sure I'm not not making this up. No, it it was there for a couple decades. So we had one in a mall in KC as well. And I had a my old bandmate used to work there actually. So yeah, it existed. Didn't really make a whole lot of sense. They literally had surfboards all over the walls and stuff. Right, so right. It, was, it was more about, I think, just the aesthetic of clothing and that they'd sell like, more. yeah, they'd sell like Hawaiian shirts and stuff. But yeah, we're in the middle of the country. There's no surfing to be had, unfortunately here. But my yeah, wife, that, it's funny because my wife grew up like by the by the shore here and her her father's like a lifelong surfer. You know, he's he like he's the guy that surfs in the middle of the winter kind of guy, you know, so yeah. I remember like actually calling her about that. But there's a surf shop here in Kansas. <laughs> yeah kind of bizarre i think it's funny i think they actually just closed down maybe last year with covid and everything now now i feel bad (laughs) (laughs) i could be wrong about that they might still be there we've been permits the last year we haven't really done a whole lot but we used to on the weekends we would go to mass street and just walk up and down just because there's so many cool things there's new businesses coming in and out of that place and that strip all the time but yeah i think i'm pretty sure if i remember correctly i saw you guys play in lawrence at the Granada with the Academy is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't think of the venue, but it was kind of like a theater type setup, I believe. Yeah. 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 yeah and it's still there. Luckily they're, they're hanging on. So awesome. Yeah. I'm stoked because Lawrence has a lot of the sort of iconic venues that people from Kansas city, they'll travel to. There's a bunch in Kansas city as well, but my whole life I've been going to Lawrence to see shows as well. And how far apart are the two? They're about 45, 40 minutes. Okay, cool. Yeah. And it's just a stretch on 70. So it's pretty quick. Nice. But when I was a teenager, I was driving back and forth, going to shows every weekend and I was playing in bands and we would play Lawrence quite a bit. And so, yeah, it's kind of like the same hub and everybody that books shows, they'll book at both places. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's, well, that's sweet. Dude, thank you for agreeing to do this, man. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited because I've been a fan of your band, but what's also really exciting, you're the singer of one of my favorite bands, but you've also got this plethora of work that you've done in your studio and you're a record producer as well and an engineer. And right. I think that's really cool, the cross connection. And there's a lot of parallels with being in a band and then going behind the scenes and doing work that way as well and working on new records and things. I wanted to start by asking you, I was revisiting the beginnings of Hidden in Plain View and seeing when you guys started. And I noticed that you guys started in 2000, which is, I was 16 years old. That's when I started my first band, but you were on the East coast right? and you guys are from New Jersey, right? Northern New Jersey. Okay, cool. Okay. So I just have to ask, what was that time like around that 2000 mark when you guys started the band or maybe just before it, were you guys going to basement shows? You hear about these infamous basement shows and there was a community of bands and people. For sure. Yeah. There's, you know, we kind of missed the basement show thing. Like to my knowledge, it was like, it was really big in like the late nineties, particularly mm-hmm. down by, um, like by Rutgers college. And then when we were coming up, that's when like hall shows were more popular. So like people would like rent out a hall and like by people, I mean, like usually the bands, like we'd get together with another band and, you know, cover the $700 fee to rent the hall and then hope you get your money back on the door, you know? Yeah. Like whether it was 
maybe not so much us doing the shows, more like our like close friends would run the shows. But like back then, it was crazy. But there, there, there were shows everywhere. I mean, on any given night, there could have been eight shows in North Jersey alone. You know, you'd have wow. like a show in Montclair, then a show 45 minutes away in like Rutherford, and then another show a half hour west of there. So it was kind of, there was definitely times when we actually played multiple shows in one night. We're like, we'd play the one show and then pack up and go to the next one, which like looking back on it is such a dick move. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we were, uh, any chance we had, we could play, we were going to play, you know. Sure. Um, but it was, it was a cool time, man. A lot of cool memories. Yeah. A lot of great bands to come out of that scene too. Just the East yeah, Coast you know, around the like, 2000s. And, and it was, there's always a bit of competition, I think, between bands, you know, like, and I, I look at it as like healthy competition in the sense where like you would play that show and like you'd realize like, wow, like that band's got their shit together. They, they sound great. Like we need to go back and practice and work on that. Whether it's like they just they were performers, they weren't just playing their songs. They knew how to actually engage the crowd, you know. So it was cool. It was, it was very it was kind of like a good way to when I say competitive, I feel like that's like a little too negative. It's more like. Yeah, but you guys were like, helping <laughs> each other level up. Level up, right, yeah. And so, like, I love that about our scene where, like, we just had so many good friends, you know, that were good musicians, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and you guys were pushing each other to be better. Right, and, like, and straight up, like, we were fans of the bands, too. Like, I was a huge fan of Armor for Sleep. Like, I loved that band. I still do, mm-hmm. you know? And then to, like, later be on tour together and call yourselves friends is really cool. Yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. Were they from the same area, New Jersey? Yeah, they were kind of spread out like we were. We weren't, like, totally from the same town, our band. Okay. But we called ourselves, we were from, at, at one time, we were from a town called Mendham, because that's where we, where we practice. But really, cool. we were like 45 minutes apart, you know, we've come together. I think Armour was from Teaneck. That's what they called home. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, just a lot of great bands from that whole area. Was it a bit of a community as well? Were you guys playing shows oh, sure. with each other? And Oh, yeah. I mean, if we weren't playing a show, we were going to a show. You know, it yeah. was one of those things. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, we were like, we would be front row at the, the Midtown show, you know, singing yeah. along because I love that band too. Yeah, for sure. In fact, as a, we, our bass player, Chris, he was a little bit older than us. And so he actually has, it was funny, he was going through photos. We were already in Hidden Plainview for like a year at this point. And he found photos of a show he was playing. He was in a band called The Derringers. And me and Joe, the singer, were like front row. Like, oh, cool. Had, had, we didn't know each other yet, you know, but it's just kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I love the connection there. And you just find out how small your world really is. It's kind of like that in Kansas City. People will post old photos of shows and I'm kind of looking through the crowd. Oh yeah, there's me. Okay. <laughs> I guess right. I forget how often we were going to shows and local shows back then. So it sounds like it was kind of like that in your neck of the woods as well. Yeah, and I mean, there was, I remember, there, was really, there was no internet, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. there was, but it was, there's no social media. So like, that's how you were, you'd socialize. Yeah, um, Exactly. Right. When did you guys go on tour? You probably toured a little bit before you got signed to drive through around the 2001, 2002. Yeah. What was that I like? Did you guys book your own tours? We, yes. And yeah, yeah, we did. Our big thing, like when we started out, like we made it a point to try to play out of state as much as possible mm-hmm. just to try to, you know, spread out. So we had done a bunch of weekend tours where we would like pack up on Friday, head up to Connecticut, then go down to Philadelphia, then maybe to Baltimore, then come home. So we did a yeah. bunch of those. Okay maybe three, like three or four day runs, we'd call them. And then we did our first independent tour. I want to say we had been a band for about a year and a half at that point. And we went out with our buddies. They were called Face First. Mm-hmm. And they, they later turned into Houston Calls. Yeah. Um, and I was actually, the originally I was the drummer for Face First. 
and I don't want to ramble too much here, but uh, no, I remember that band name. I remember seeing their flyers and stuff. I think my first band played with them out on the East Coast. Cool. Yeah, they were like like a punk ska band, more punk than ska. But so like you know, when I left that band, it was on on good terms. I just it was basically it just came down to I just wanted to play guitar. You okay. know, I didn't want to be. I didn't. I wanted. I I was kind of getting more into songwriting, so I wanted to be. It's hard to kind of express yourself as a songwriter when you're a drummer. You know, of yeah. course you can. You can do that, but uh, you know, it's easier to pick up a guitar and show the guys. Here's a song I'm coming up with, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so we we stayed close friends. So that they were the first band that took us on tour because they they had been on a tour or two already, you know. But yeah, it was it was definitely emailing people, like seeing who, who the local bands were, and being like, hey, if you can put us on a show, we'll hook you up next time you're out on the East Coast, kind of thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. That's how it became that network of people, right? I think that was really happening around that time. You were looking up bands and venues in other areas. And sure. that was the hope, right? Like you could hook them up with a show and vice versa. They'd hook you up with a show and maybe a place to stay too. You know, a crazy story. We were on that tour. That tour, I want to say it was about a month. And of the month, we're able to book maybe four shows a week if we're lucky. Because mm-hmm. uh, no one's going to come see a local band on a Monday night, you know? Right. And no one's going to book you. So we, uh, I can actually remember us being like that tour did like the East coast first. We did maybe two weeks and then all of our dates going to the West coast, like almost all of them got canceled. Oh um, no. And so we're like, <laughs> but we had the end goal was to get out to California. Cause we had a couple, um, labels come to see us. So we were like, so stoked, but we got to get there. And I remember like being in a library. I want to say like in like South Carolina, Cause you, you go and you could like rent the computer for like an hour for like yeah. four bucks. Oh, wow. Remember that? I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So you, we had to, we'd have to go in and like make a library card with a fake address to get a library card. <laughs> then, we could, then we could like use their computer to go on. I forget the website, but it was like something was it called your own fucking life. It might've been okay. actually, I think it was, I think it was. Yeah. That's what we use to book our tours. And I remember like me and Jared at the time, were just hitting up all these places and then we end up getting like an email back from some band that were called Red Apple and they were up in Seattle. The email was basically like, yeah, come on up. We'll put you on a bunch of shows. And like, Red. that's what we went with. So our last show was like in the Chicago area. We're like, all right, well, this got this one band never met them. They're going to put us on a couple of shows up in Seattle. Oh, our friend Marcos lives up there in Seattle. We can stay with him. So we drove from Chicago all the way up to Seattle, which is like, that's like a 20 hour drive, if not wow. more. Yeah. And then okay. with our two bands and I think we each had seven members with us between band members and crew and all 14 of us stayed in Marcos's one bedroom apartment for like, <laughs> for like a week and a half or something like slept on the floor. Like just, just crazy. Yeah. In a corner. Yeah. We definitely had our fair share of that. Just a traveling circus. And of course we took all of our friends with us that just wanted to travel the world and they would be our techs right. and our, our roadies and our merch salesmen. Exactly. Great times, man. I find that, I really appreciate and I'm grateful for those moments now because that was the moments of discomfort, but it was me doing the thing that I wanted to do. And that totally. was the sacrifice that you were willing to do. I'm an independent contractor now, as I would assume you would consider yourself a business owner, an entrepreneur type, but yeah, I guess so. Which seems weird that way, right? But it, it coincides with what we did when we were in a band and we were trying to facilitate some sort of a business, you know, and we were willing to really pay our dues to get to that totally. place where we wanted. Yep. Yeah. So 
And it sounds like you guys did pay your dues during that three-year stretch from maybe 2000 to you guys put out a couple EPs, 2001, 2002. Right. And then you said you guys had some label attention. How did you guys come into contact with Drive Through? Well, it's kind of to like, just to follow up what you were saying on that is like, that was always important to me was to kind of pay our dues. Because I feel like there was almost like, because everyone had the band that just like, you were friends that, that just, they just blew up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know, you, you always hear that story. And I feel like, the band that worked a little bit harder and kind of put the time in always kind of held a little bit more respect from, from their peers. Yeah. So, so I think that was important to us to do that. Not to say we wouldn't have just been snatched up by a label and been happy with that way too, you know? Sure. But I met Richard, the owner of drive through oddly enough on a face first tour. Oh, cool. Drive through had put actually put one of face first songs on a comp and they were going to do a distro deal for them. So we weren't signed, but we were like working with them. So okay. They put us up for a couple of days and kind of a fun story was that at that time I was like, you know, I had mentioned I was like writing, starting to write songs and getting into that world. Well, feeling confident enough to finally start showing people the songs I was, was writing. Mm-hmm. And I had recorded a couple acoustic songs, just me playing guitar and singing. And on that tour, Richard made a joke. Being like, Well, he said, I, he's like, I hear you play guitar and sing as well. And I was like, yeah, he goes, I want to hear some songs. And he made like a joke being like, you can't have dinner tonight unless you play songs for us. So I actually <laughs> sat, I sat in the kitchen and I played them like five or six songs that I'd written and it was good. Everyone had a good time. And then like, he pulled me aside later when we were getting ready to leave. He's like, Hey, he's like, I really actually like your solo stuff a lot. He's like, do me a favor. He's like, make me a demo when you get home and send it to me. So I went home and started to make a demo. And in the same process, oddly enough, the last, like our coming home from tour show for Face First, I met Derek and Kenny, who were the original members of Hidden. And they're like, hey, yeah, we're starting this, this like punk band, looking for a guitar player. And at that time, Face First was basically coming home from that tour. And we had agreed to take off a couple months to let everyone, those guys were a year younger than me. And so it was like, they were starting their first year of college. Mm-hmm. And the one guy was going up to Boston, one guy was going to Baltimore. And they're like, let's just take a couple of weeks or a couple of months to let them get settled in. And then we'll kind of get the band, you know, going again on the weekends. So for me, I had all this free time in my hands. So I was like, sure, I'll come down and jam with you guys. And I came down and the first practice, we kind of clicked. I guess one thing led to another and we were jamming a whole lot more. I brought Joe in, who I knew from high school as our singer. And so we were both singing. And that's kind of when I decided to like tell the face first guys, I was kind of looking to not do both bands. You know, I wanted to focus on the one. I'm more happy here. You guys would be better off finding a drummer that's totally committed, you know? Because yeah. it, it, it started to get to a point where like both bands were getting show offers and I had to pick one or the other, you know? And that's, yeah. it's not a cool place to be, you know? Sure. You just had to prioritize um, at that point. Right. So Back to the whole drive thing, instead of sending Richard my acoustic demo, I sent him Hidden's first EP. Oh, nice. Which was essentially a demo, but we ended up calling it an EP. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the find EP. And I sent him that and Richard, and he was like, yeah, I don't really like this that much. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He was honest. And like, you know, it's, you need that sometimes, you know? Yeah. But, you know, but he did like give pointers. He's like, "I, I, I like this. I don't like that, you know? He was always really good about that kind of stuff. And then so every time we'd make a new recording, I'd send it along and he'd be like, this is better. This is cool. And then, you know, we just kind of touch base every once in a while. And I remember like he actually messaged me on Instagram or on Instagram. Jeez, that wasn't even around yet. <laughs> on Instant Messenger. And he's like, he goes, why do I keep hearing about your band name all around the country now? That's like when mp3.com was blowing up. And so yeah. you were able to get your music out. And we had started. Guys, doing- sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Were you guys on mp3.com? 
Oh yeah. For okay. Sure. But that's kind of when we started doing like our first tours we did like the West coast, actually the West coast tour when we were going out to meet labels, we were looking to meet up with, I forget who it even was at the time, like militia group and lobster were looking at mm -hmm. us and we ended up breaking down. We never got there. Our van broke down. We had to go home. Oh, um, man. Yeah. And it was like so crushing, but at the same time, it's like, it all worked out, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause we got home from that tour and that's when Richard hit me up. He's like, well, I'm hearing about your band a whole lot more. And he was like, I'm going to be out in Jersey in October. I want to set up like a rehearsal where you guys can play, play me some songs. So we booked some like rehearsal space down by where he was, he was staying and we get there and he was like two hours late. So we were like, <laughs> the guys in my band are looking at me like, is this for real? Is this actually going to happen? I'm like, no, he said he's going to be here, you know? And they finally showed up. And I guess the story goes back then, like Richard did more of like the scouting for bands and Stephanie, his sister, they both run the label. Mm -hmm. She was more of like the person that ran the label. Yeah. So I don't want to speak for them, but I do know that Stephanie came to our rehearsal because she remembered me from like, Face the first. Facebook. Yeah. Okay. So, and I guess she like never would usually go to the rehearsals, but she came anyway. And she actually, I think liked us more than Richard, to be honest, <laughs> but, but they, they really liked, it was a great rehearsal. Like they, we played them our whole set and they're like yo play us some new songs and we had just written a couple songs and they're like those are your best songs ever like you gotta and once again they're like make us a demo and send it to us and we're like so we left for like it was cool but i'm like i'm not sure if they're just trying to be nice to us because like i kept hearing this make me a demo make me a demo you know yeah but i mean the, the truth is we, we, we just weren't ready yet and i think at that point we were finally were just about ready you know yeah um so we ended up, I mean, we like left that rehearsal. That was probably like in the early afternoon. And we went right back to my house where I had a basement studio. And we actually like recorded those songs like that night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Cause we're like, so I you... just want to get this. I, I want to just get it in there, you know, while they're yeah. still thinking of us, you know? Yeah. You were and... thinking urgency, expediency, you know? Oh yeah. It's kind of cool that you had, you already had some, a setup for recording at that time. Because oh, yeah, totally. home I mean, recordings were a little bit primitive back then. You know, you either had somebody with a full console in their basement and that was part of their side gig of recording bands because they were sure. in bands in the 80s and 90s. And then you had a four track. Right. I, at that time, I was, that was like when I just first got my first Pro Tools rig. They just come out with like the, the LE systems. Mm -hmm. So you could finally, if, like you can get your hands on, because Pro Tools at that point was like, you needed like $15,000 to get it to work. Then they realized that no one was buying them because they were like, why am I going to buy this? I don't know if I even like it, you know? Right. So they started, like, they started making like a, I think I got my first system for maybe a thousand bucks. Okay. But it was limited. You can only use like 24 tracks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, just to finish that story, we ended up recording the demo and then Joe and Chris actually, <laughs> our bass player and singer, they, uh, they actually went to the airport because they were like, oh, Richard, we got that demo. He's like, already? He's like, well, I'm going to the airport now. And he's like, why don't you meet me there? So they just drove to the airport. And at that time, they were able to like get through security to hand him the CD, mm -hmm. which is crazy. And then typical Richard gets home and like forgets to listen to it. <laughs> and I guess another cool story, if I'm remembering it correctly, which I think I he had the CD. Remember like back when like cars had like, you had like a hundred discs in your trunk. Mm -hmm. And you could like play him, you know? So he had like one of those systems. I'm not sure if it was a hundred, but he had our CD in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And Stephanie had to borrow her, his car because hers was getting fixed for, for something. And she just happened upon our CD in the giant disc changer. Mm -hmm. And so she got back to the office. She goes, what are those songs on that one band? I really like the songs. Like, who are they? And he had no idea who it was. So they actually had to go out to the trunk and pull out. <laughs> CD and like they found out they was oh that's the hidden and plain view demo 
And I guess that's when they decided, oh, this is like something what we want to sign. And then like a month later, they called us. That's the funny thing about it is like, we give them that demo and again, hear nothing. So we're like, ah, oh, they don't like it. And then I think it was Joe ran into Richard at, at a show. He's like, hey, we want to see you guys uh, come hang out tomorrow night. And that's when they offered us a deal. Wow. It was kind of crazy. Serendipitous. Just the fact that yeah. she happened to borrow his car. It happened to be on that demo. She happened right. to be in the mood where she was, oh, I really like this. And I don't know what this is. What is this? Let's inquire about this, you know? Right. And then, I mean, it probably speaks to the tenacity of you guys and the band, because I think you'd have to be pretty on a mission, pretty singularly focused to go, okay, we're going to go record a demo right now because he just asked us for it. And yeah. then we're going to call him and make sure he's still in town and then literally drive to the airport to give it to him at the last possible second. You know, that's right. some people say it's not luck. It's every little decision to work really hard, you know, and just the culmination of that. But I think it is kind of a, it's a combo of timing luck and tenacity and driving hard work. It's all baked into that. You know, sure. there's a lot of the stars aligning there, but it's also like, just like take the recording, having the ability to record, like, you know, that was kind of something we had in our back pocket for that reason though, that we could do stuff like that. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's all the stuff leading up to that moment that gets you there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then invariably all the things that come after, because that's probably a moment in time where there's been a million things that have spawned from that, just being associated with drive-through records around that time. That's nuts. Um, yeah. And you guys put out an incredible record. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you guys had paid your dues. You got signed to drive through. I love that story, by the way, because I think around that time, these label owners, they kind of knew they didn't have to really rush. They kind of had that leverage in their pocket a little bit. I remember yeah. my band, we went to Chicago because we were talking to somebody that worked there and we were going to showcase for them. And we booked for, three for, shows literally for like with for victory. Yeah. yeah. This is probably 2002. And I actually finished the story, but I've got to, this is actually great. Go ahead, keep going. Oh, you got to tell your story. I would love to hear it. But long story short, we immediately urgently booked three shows up in Chicago for a weekend. Cool. And it was during the wintertime. And I'm sure you've been to Chicago in the wintertime. It's just frigid. There's snow all the time. And so we, yeah, exactly. So we go up there. We have no tour booked. We just booked these three shows in isolation by themselves. And we go up right. there and we get up there and we talk to the person that we're talking to at the label and they go, yeah, we're going to be there. Tony's going to come out. Some people from the label, we're looking forward to seeing you guys play. We play, nobody shows up. So we let them know the next night, hey, we're going to be at this venue. Nobody shows up. And then the last night we're there and we're feeling kind of defeated. We're staying at a friend's apartment. And he goes, yeah, I'm really sorry. I can't make it. I've got to go out of town. I've got a red eye to the West Coast. And we're just thinking... Uh. Oh, you know, like we worked so hard to get this together, but we were just on a mission, you know, at that point sure. we had toured quite a bit and we just wanted to have some label backing. I think that was the goal at the time, you know, just try to be as self-sufficient as possible and then hopefully get picked up by a label so you could get a good booking agent, get on good tours, get distribution of your records. And for sure. And just yeah. get some like basic guidance too. Cause I feel like when you're a band starting out, you just kind of feel like you're, you've got no clue what to do next, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of just winging it. Right. Yeah. But you have a victory record story or a Chicago well, honestly, story. That's that first tour story I mentioned about us going out to Seattle. We had that one show in Chicago and that show was also set up to be a victory like showcase. Mm -hmm. And we, as like the creeps we are, we actually like just showed up at their office, like with like copies of our CDs. Cause like someone from the label was supposed to come to the show, but we're like, Oh, we'll just go down to the, we'll just knock on the door and just, hand a box of CDs to like, to the, to victory. Yeah. And, uh, and they were nice, but they like, they like sent 
somebody out to like talk to us like we weren't allowed in you know yeah um, but um they ended up not coming to the, the show or they did but nothing came of it and then um oddly enough once drive through offered us a deal they offered us a deal like the next day because <laughs> i guess they like heard about it you know we're like yeah. hey we were, we were actually at your office like five months ago and you know yeah just wonder how that works out you know yeah, that's the thing. You had some competition between the labels at that point. So if one band got offered a deal, it was like by proxy, the other labels had to pay attention. I know for a fact, there was certain bands that were offered deals that were not deals just so other labels would give them a deal. Wow. Like I know Crazy. for a fact, I know that Richard offered a deal or, or leaked that he was going to sign a certain band when he actually never was going to just because they were friends of his. Mm-hmm. And then, then once he did that, they got offered a major, a major label deal. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's amazing the power and the leverage that they had at that time. Because the major labels were doing it too. If they heard that somebody was showcasing, they would literally send somebody out, even if they had no intention of signing them. Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. Just weird, the politics of labels at that time. I'm sure it's way different now, but I'm sure there's some parallels at the same time. Okay, so you guys got signed to DriveThru. I'm sure that was incredibly exciting because DriveThru was kind of the mecca at that point. I mean, they were just exploding bands and bands were associated with the label and it became sort of this package deal. A lot of the labels around that time, Tooth and Nail, it's like if you got signed to Tooth and Nail, you automatically had a fan base, which was really exciting, right? right? Because they were doing compilation albums at all the shows. They had the street team members passing them out at all of the big shows in town. And if you got a song on there, instant brand recognition, you're associated with the label. So people who are fans of the bands of the label, they're fans of the label. By proxy, they should be fans of you guys. What was it like that transition period of getting signed to drive through and then recording life and dreaming because i'm assuming you guys probably did that around the 2004 mark because you released it in 2005 right yeah i think it was supposed to come out 2004 but then they pushed it back because of like label conflict something else but yeah it went so quick man like that was like like the honeymoon phase where like everything is just everything's new right so it's like the first time you saw a venue and it's like it's the coolest thing ever you know like the first time you sign an autograph like that what the heck's that all about you know like yeah I don't know, like even like things like now, like they gave us a budget to go buy a real van. This is awesome, you know, and we got to get better equipment. You know, everything was so cool. Yeah. I don't know. They signed us. And the cool thing about, not the cool thing, but the good thing about us is we were already pretty self-sufficient in the sense that we were able to tour. Like we knew how to do it already. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the bands, they, I know a few of the bands they signed had like never really done that yet. And some of the bands didn't even have like a full band yet. They were kind of putting it together, you know. as a project. Yeah. Or like they had like temporary members that were like, you know, just kind of deciding what they were going to do. So we were actually able to start like we had once they like announced we were going to get when they put us on their like website that we're the new band, you know, it was like quite literally overnight that it went from the same 15 people that would come to our shows went to like 200 to 300 people would show up. Yeah. And like, in fact, we we played at this place called the it's called the Bloomfield Ave Cafe in Montclair. We played there quite often, like once a month, probably. And we played there, you know, with like four other bands, maybe had like 70 people there. And then they announced us on like a Friday, I want to say, or a Thursday. And our next show, like a week later, we played the same venue and it was sold out. And I remember wow. like actually being there and being like, what? Why are there so many people here? Like what? And they're like, oh, because you guys got signed. I'm like, well, that's stupid. Like we were still going to play the same songs we played last week. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's just was a cool, like it was very cool. Um, and I guess people just wanted to know what was going on, you know? But yeah, and then we got offered like a quick little starting line tour early November. So we were like on the road right away, touring off of our EP that we put out. 
And then, sorry, I'm rambling here, but we ended up getting into the studio to do Life and Dreaming 2000, spring of 2004. Okay. And so then, pretty yeah, because we, we were on Warp Tour, not playing the album yet. Yeah. And then it came out, like, I got, I think it came out February of 2005. Yeah. Um, and you guys recorded with Jim Wirt, correct? Yeah. Out in LA? Was it in LA? Yeah. It was okay. in, um, in Santa Monica, which I guess is not LA, but it's, you know, outskirts. Down- yeah, it was really cool. We had like the label got us an apartment. We were out there for about two months, I want to say. And so that was the first time like, you know, we had recorded a whole bunch of stuff and worked with other producers. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time, like the first week we actually just got with Jim and went to a rehearsal space and just played the songs and like worked on them. And he like really, like, he made a couple suggestions, but more than anything, he just like, it was almost like putting us to work, you know, like mm-hmm. it was like going to like baseball practice, you know, working on your skills. Yeah. <laughs> so that by the time we got to the studio, we were like, we knew the songs really well. But it was a cool setup because we lived maybe like three or four miles south. They had got us like a, a condo townhouse set thing. So you had the option to either walk to the studio or drive. So the mornings we get up and just walk, which is cool. Red. Yeah. Going from like our East Coast winters, because we were there like in, I want to say, I could be wrong, but I want to say it was like early May. Mm-hmm. We felt so spoiled, you know, being in like yeah. Southern California, working with a, this big producer in this really cool studio. Yeah. Because at that point he had done Incubus Records. Yep. Pretty sure he had done something corporate at that point. Yeah. In fact, yeah. actually, he was working with something corporate. Andrew McMahon actually stopped by the studio to hand him the demos for what was going to be Jack's mannequin. Oh, cool. Because he had talked about, about doing like a solo project. So we got to meet Andrew. And that's actually how he played on one of our songs. Because Jim was like, hey, do you want to play piano on this song? So we went out and, and he played on uh, Halcyon Days. Yeah. Did he help you guys write lyrics to a song too? Am I remembering that correctly? Or I no, thought maybe I saw, read an interview that he helped either write a song or he maybe helped with one melody of a chorus or something. He he played basically that song House in Days was one that we weren't sure was going to make the record or not Mm -hmm. because it just wasn't like we hadn't like really figured because it's definitely more of a studio song than it was like in the past like all of our other songs were like we knew the way we played them live pretty much sounded how they were going to sound on the record but that Mm -hmm. was one that we knew we wanted to kind of add more production to it and I'm not sure if like we weren't feeling it or Jim wasn't feeling it but it just wasn't really clicking yet and so when we played we played that song, it was basically Andrew coming in the room and playing piano to it. We realized like, oh, that's that's what it needed. And then oddly enough, Jim had the brilliant idea just to actually reverse the piano. So the sound you hear in the song in the beginning is actually it's all the strings and the piano backwards. And that kind of became like the pad to the whole song. And then Rad. once that, that happened, then it was like, oh, this song's amazing. It's got to go on the record. And then we like kind of rebuilt it. Okay, cool. So it was kind yeah. of a studio project once you got there. Yeah. I love that song too. I think it fits the record too. It gives it a little bit of dynamics to the record because the sure. record is, it's a fairly dynamic record, but that definitely adds to it. I love that song. Were you, I have so many questions about this recording experience because I'm sure it was fun for you. You had already dabbled in recording a little bit. Were you really paying attention around this time? Oh, was, was it like kind was- of- I was so annoying. I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure. Like Jim thought I was the most annoying guy in the world. Like, <laughs> what does that do? Why are you doing that? Why are we doing that? Why? And like, yeah. But just trying to soak up all the knowledge, you know, because he's like, he's an old school guy. Like he, he really works to get the sounds. Like there's not a lot of trickery involved, you know. It's like play it right or just do it again, you know. Yeah. And it was cool. I, I feel like we we came up at a cool time too, where we were using Pro Tools, but like it wasn't. We tracked the whole thing to tape, and then they would take the tape and they would drop the tape into Pro Tools and edit and then put it back on tape to mix. Um, wow. Which is like slow and tedious, but again, it kind of makes you, you know, you got to perform. Like you have to get that take right 
because it's not gonna be like oh, i just copy and paste it yeah like every chorus every chorus was us playing the guitar over mm-hmm. and then do it again and like you can imagine like some of the riffs like the bleed fuel riff which the that happens like 900 times in the song and it's played 900 times wow and maybe there might have been some editing you know that i didn't see that they did when cj was who was the pro tools engineer when he was editing but whether or not he edited it, Jim still made me play it every single time. You know? <laughs> We're like now with bands I'm tracking, I'm like, it's different now because now there's, the, you know, people don't have the time or the budgets to, to spend like we did back then. So it will be like, all right, that riff happens when? Okay, cool. Let's get it good. And then that's it. Copy and paste. Yep. Move on. Yeah. It's about that workflow, right? I mean, yeah. it's like you said, one of the benefits to modern recording is you can do it much faster so much faster yeah but that's cool though i mean you guys were kind of in the middle there where people were probably abandoning tape you didn't have as many purists in the mid 2000s you still had a few but i remember the late 90s early 2000s you definitely had a lot of people coining the phrase i'm not using slow tools it crashes my computer uh tape sounds better it sounds warmer but at the same time i go back and i listen to life and dreaming and you can hear the authenticity in the performances there it still sounds pristine it sounds great but it sounds analog too though like if it does in the drums especially yeah it's just a little bit loose and spencer is an amazing drummer but I like that. That's something. That... Yeah, I mean, I, I I think about it a lot. Like if that was if we did end up going with like a Mark Trombino or going with like a John Feldman at the time, like I love those guys productions, but I don't think it would have been the right fit. You know, it would have been a different record for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That leads me to my next question. And it's cool if you guys didn't. I think it worked out tremendously well, given that you did work with Jim Wirt and he's a fantastic producer. He's got an amazing body of work. But did you guys talk about potentially working with a Trombino or a different producer, Steve Evans um, or anything? I think the way it actually worked was like drive through would just be like, give us a list of all the producers you want to work with. And then they have a list of producers they liked to work with. So and then that's kind of where, where it started. I'm not really sure who was on that list. I'm sure Mark Trambino was because he's like one of my favorite producers. Like he's made some of my favorite records. But yeah, I think what ended up happening for was what Jim came to see us on tour mm-hmm. and he invited us the next day to come down to the studio in Santa Monica. We were playing at the Troubadour and what sold me was like, he's just like a Southern California hippie in the sense where it's like, like, man, that's so awesome, dude. Like you guys sounded great. Like he was so excited about mm-hmm. our show and you could tell that he meant it, you know? Yeah. And so he invited us down and basically what sold us was like, all right, Southern California, we're going to, he's available this time. Cause that's everything you got to realize too, is like, you might want to work with like a Mark Trevino, but he's booked for the next two years. Yeah. And like, you, you just don't have that option, you know? So you have to yeah. kind of figure out what you're, especially as a new band, you know? Yeah. The stars have uh, to align in that sense too. Right. right. Cool. And it worked out like it was like, oh, we can track it in May and we'll still be able to get on Warp Tour. That's kind of where we landed on it. Okay, that's yeah. awesome. Cool. So did you guys play the whole Warp Tour that year? We did. Nice. That was it's a cool. grueling tour. Did you guys ever yeah. play it when you were not signed to drive through earlier on? No, never did. Okay. They had like, they, you know, they had those like local Ernie Ball competitions and stuff, but we kind of always try to stay away from those kind of things. Okay. Yeah, yeah. cool. We played the Kevin Says stage in 2002. Oh, sick. I literally emailed Kevin Lyman and you were probably hearing about him just saying, yeah, you can play whatever. (laughs) Right. Around that time, there was over a hundred bands playing. We played the year 2002 and that's actually when I met 
Stephanie and Richard on the drive-through stage because we were we were just working diligently to try to get our CD our demo into the hands sure. of as many people as possible. But yeah, it was a grueling thing because we would drive all night and then we'd have to check in early morning and then we'd basically wait until it was our time to play. It was yeah. exhausting. A lot, of people, a lot of people don't realize too, like it's not always a nice day. <laughs> you know, like in my opinion, like I was, I walk towards the crate. It's a great summer day. Like a lot of the times it's, it's raining or it's cold or yeah. you know, it's really windy, you know? Yeah. Um, or like 115 degrees if you're in Arizona or something. Right. And you got nowhere to go. That's the biggest problem. We were lucky enough to have a bus. Granted, we shared it with like 18 people, but yeah, definitely a, uh, not the cleanest of tours. I'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause like sometimes like you don't even have like the time to get a, a room anywhere because you know, the venue might open up at like what 9am and then, mm-hmm. you know, for the, for like to set up the venue and then doors open at like 11 or, or noon. So you're setting up all this stuff and like and you find out that your stage is actually two miles that way. So you have to, you know, yeah. drag your gear and yep. then, uh, yeah, it's not, and, and then you wait and then, and then the show might not be over till like 10 and your bus is parked in a spot where you can't leave until it's over. Yeah. And then the drive's actually 12 hours. So you're going to literally drive until the, the next doors open again, basically. Yeah, exactly. And if you're doing it in a van yourself, you're taking turns for each of those 12 hour drives. Did you guys like bring a friend to drive or did you guys have to drive too? We did. There was definitely nights where we would drive and the stipulation was we would actually get there around five or six. That was the goal to get there around that time. And we would have to check in early, early. So it was like, we'd have to find the production office around anywhere between six and seven. That's what I remember. All the memories are like like flooding back now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we would. Where's the production office? We're that way somewhere, you know? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It would be different at every venue. You'd have no idea. And sometimes it would be in the amphitheater and sometimes it would be in a bus somewhere or something, you know? And so I remember. It's all like pre-smartphone too. So like maybe you might've had a sidekick or something, but like, and, and also like, a lot of those ven- those venues are like, there's no cell phone service out in that field anyway. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a trip. We earned our legs out there, but it was an adventure for sure. So you guys so did the Warp Tour? How long did you guys do it for? As far as the Warp Tour? Yeah. We were fortunate because the first time we did it, Kevin Lyman literally gave us two weeks. He just said, pick two weeks and you got it. Amazing. On the Yeah. And so we showed up literally Kansas City was our first date, which was probably maybe a month into it or the end of June. And we showed up to the production office and we had no idea what the process was. And we show up and we literally walk in. People are kind of guiding us, telling us where to go. And we walk into this little office space and it's Lisa and Kevin. And he's yeah. got basically a big table, big, long table. And he's got all the bands written on post-it notes or cards or something. <laughs> It's like the war room map. Yeah, exactly. He's deciding (laughs) when they go, what order. And we show up and, hey, we emailed you a month and a half ago. You said, pick two weeks and you got it. And he goes, what band are you in? (laughs) (laughs) We're in this band. And he goes, okay. And he literally scribbles our name on one of the notes. And he goes, you're playing, he goes, you're playing the Kevin says stage. You're playing first. Don't be late. And so that was, I mean, I was 18. It was 2002. So it was just like being thrust into this world, but we were just so jazzed. Like the fact that he didn't even, he hadn't even heard our music. He just gave us a shot. I also like, I just loved also that Warped Tour. Like you're walking around, you're like, that's fucking Matt Steva. Holy shit. That's Travis Barker. Like it's like all of like these like celebrities to me, like our first time there, like that was, and like, we're eating lunch. I'm like, dude, that's like the guys from like the refuser over there, you know, I don't know. Just yeah. Cool stuff. No. Yeah, exactly. Right. I remember we got out of our van and fat Mike drove right by us on a, <laughs> a motorized scooter. Yeah. 
uh, that's Fat Mike from NoFX. I've been listening to him for a decade now, and it was definitely like starstruck moments everywhere, but made a lot of friends. And then we we were lucky. We were fortunate enough to play in 2003 as well. And that was the year I remember going to the production offices, and I remember seeing Kevin a lot more flustered. He was frustrated. And I remember hearing him lamenting that inviting all these bands was starting to backfire because you had a lot of local bands and there was no oversight. So they would steal golf carts and yeah. damage stuff yeah. and kind of ruined it for everybody because I remember after that, they cut the bands in half. They were just like, like, we're not. Do, he's trying to do everyone like a, a, a cool thing and like people are taking advantage of it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was totally part of that punk rock DIY ethos because he was thinking, you know, I remember when we finished in 2002, we had a conversation with him. We found him on the grounds during the show. Okay, we just want to thank you so much for this opportunity. He goes, yeah, the reason I do this is because I want to see you guys back here. I want to see you back here on a bigger stage. Yeah. And I just thought that was so cool. You know, my little 18 year old brain, I was thinking, oh crap, there are people in the world who are trying to do a solid for people and yeah. help out and cultivate some sense of a community. And he's uh, such a good dude. And like, he's also like, he means it too. Like there's a lot of like promoters that are, nowhere near the size of like the stuff that he's done that are like like who the fuck are you like to talk to me like this or whatever you know yeah and now he he, he knows it like you know he, he like he knows he's got his finger on the pulse man you know yeah well, he did for sure. yeah yeah for sure yeah because I, I had a very similar situation with him too like walking up and then being like yeah i know who you guys are you're, you're doing great you know like keep working at it and you know we'll see how what next year brings kind of thing yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Okay. Well, cool. So you guys put out Life and Dreaming and it yeah. does it does really well. I think that was a record that people were excited about because Drive Through, in my mind, looking back on it, they kind of opened the doors for other labels like Fuel by Ramen and Fearless to really become a brand. And maybe they weren't trying to do that because I think each individual band was special in and of themselves and influenced so many other bands. But what was that like, the release of it and everything, and then going on tour? The, the release was good. It did really well for us. I don't really know, like, how to, to um, like, like was it sales? Did it sell really good? Like, for what was us, it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I that was kind of a, a transitional period because you had Napster, the effects of Napster right. afterwards. So right. I feel like it's all a bit skewed in that area as far as sales goes anyways. You know, like, right. I, I know that record was relevant to me and a lot of my friends. And we were just as jazzed about that as we were, say it like you mean it a couple of years prior. I guess what I'm asking is, was it beginning to be a little bit more stressful because you guys were kind of thrown into this world where you're touring a lot more and the band is definitely a bigger part of your focus because you guys put out a record a couple years later right. and that's when you called it so i'm just curious what was it like within the band during that time the I, life I and dreaming release that was probably if looking back at it that was kind of like our peak really as far as like we were feeling really good it was our first role length you know we had, we had done three piece at that point so it was yeah. we can finally like spread our wings a little bit and like show off some more versatility you know because that, that was a big thing and like you mentioned it we wanted a record that was dynamic we didn't want it to be like because you know, we had phases of like we were like we were doing some of like the screamo stuff and times when we were like really pop punk and mm -hmm. i feel like on life and jimmy we kind of were able to kind of settle into like our own sound you know and yeah um maybe it's, it's almost even it's almost a little bit alternative at times versus like punk you know mm -hmm. um so when it, when it came out it was it got like good reviews and i think people the, the critics, if you will, they they actually took note of that. Like, oh, this band's not just another pop punk band. So that felt really good. And then we started getting bigger and better tour offers and stuff. 
And then I will say like that year was probably the craziest year as far as touring goes for us. We toured like nonstop on that record. I think mm-hmm. we probably toured. I have to go back and look at it, but we, we, we toured for a solid almost two years on that record. Cool. Multiple countries, all that kind of stuff. So it was, again, all, all like really exciting stuff. But like you mentioned, it's it's exhausting. And, and you're not exactly making a ton of money that you're like all that comfortable, you know, like. Yeah. Not that it was ever really about that, but it's it does take a toll on your body when you're still you're playing a sold out show somewhere, but then you're you're still sleeping on the floor of the hotel because it's not your turn to it's right. your turn to sleep by the air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And eating Taco Bell and Subway like every 100%. other day. Yeah, yeah. You're still <laughs> doing the grind. You're still driving the 12 hours at night, blowing out in the morning, you know. Yeah. And not to be too I don't even know what the right word to describe this would be, but is it that's interesting to me. The fact that, I mean, you were in a band that was noteworthy and on a label that was noteworthy and you probably influenced thousands of kids to start bands and things. If you were to have a conversation with each person that you influenced with that record in that time period, it'd probably be thousands of people. Do you ever think about how crazy that kind of was? The fact that you were a part of this sort of kingdom, this <laughs> company, but, and yet you were still grinding it out or it felt like as if you were grinding it out. Does that seem like a bit of an incongruence? I think you're the first person I've asked about this, but I just had Adam on from homegrown and he's got a, awesome. a new song. Yeah. And it was really fun to talk to him. And I was a massive homegrown fan, even before they got signed to drive through. So and he kind of mentioned the, the same sentiment, you know, that it was still just a ton of work. And yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if that maybe took the focus away from the fact that you guys were on such a noteworthy label and a noteworthy band. Do you think that made it difficult for you to live in the moment of it? I think, I think we had the, the tendency. Yeah, for sure. There was always what's next. You know, it was never like, this is this, this, we're on this tour. It's a sold out tour. I can remember doing like the drive-through tours mm-hmm. in the UK and they were like already sold out pretty much for the most part when you play them. And like everyone's going off at the shows, you're having a great time. But also in the back of your head is like, well, when we get back from this, we got to get on the road and drive to Florida to pick up the Less Than Jake tour. And how's that going to go over? Because like legit going from like we played the UK to like sold out shows and they were some of the best shows of our, of our lives. We we're playing really good. We'd been touring so much. And then we come back home, drive to Florida and we're on tour with Less Than Jake. And that's one of my favorite bands. But mm-hmm. like their fan base wasn't really into you. So you go from oh, like that sort to like, like legit getting booed at times, you know? So it's, Jeez. that takes a toll on your psyche, you know? And then, and then you're like, yeah. how are we doing this? You know, like, so that, I think that's, that's kind of like answering your question. It was always like a lot of worrying about what's going to happen next. You know, it's, it's hard to kind of enjoy that moment um, to, to its yeah. fullest. When you're thinking about the future, right? Yeah. Right. And then, and yeah. then also you're also thinking in the back of your head, like, we got to make another record to get us. So when you're, when you are home and you have time off, I'm working on that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, and you guys did do another record resolution, another great record. You did it with Brian McTiernan, right? Correct. Okay, cool. I'm glad my memory is serving me well today. (laughs) Fantastic record. I love that record. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Because you guys had recorded it. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I hear your vocals a little bit more on that record. You sing a little bit more on that record. For sure. I do. Yeah. Was that a conscious choice or what was the making of resolution? Like, Uh, it was like the worst record for us. I mean, I I don't say that in the sense of like, cause like, I don't want to like discredit the people that were a part of it. Cause Brian did a great job. 
we were just sort of, we were burned out. What we should have done was like just taken a break from the band, worked better, like worked on our friendships again mm-hmm. and like stopped. This the word burnout comes to mind. Like it was just a, a total burnout. So making that record, it was kind of a, a few things. Like when we came off of the life and dreaming wave, we were ready to go with resolution. We had a ton of songs ready to go. And drive through was in between contracts with their major label. And so we mm-hmm. it just kept getting kicked down the road. And I think for us, being honest, like if we jumped back in the show and made a record right away, maybe it would have went differently. Maybe we would have, this record came out, it came out good and the fans are going to like lift us back up, you know? But instead we were like writing all these songs and we were living together also, which was a big mistake. <laughs> just kind of waiting around, you know, and like money's running out. Now we're start, starting to pick up day jobs just to kind of get by. I was producing, so I was happy doing that. So it just was like a lot of things coming to head. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, I think if we just took a break, things would have been better for us, you know? Yeah. And as far as like the vocals go, I don't know. I, mean, I think that was just a product of like, we wrote a lot of these songs, like so many songs. And then when we got to the studio, because I'm the, the lyricist in the band. I write the lyrics. I think in some moments it was like songs, like lyrics that I wrote that parts that like I really wanted to sing because I wrote it and it really meant something to me. Mm-hmm. Or there were times when like I wrote something in, in my voice style that Joe wasn't getting. So I would just sing it. And then a lot of times too, it would be just be like, I'm just going to do a scratch vocal to put it in place. And then we would just never change it, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of that there. And then we know like, like being completely honest, like our friendship wasn't great at that time. So there wasn't a lot of communication going on, you know? Yeah. Cause you guys were just so young and you were with each other so much. Like you said, you were touring right. the most that year after life and dreaming. And that's a lot of egos colliding, but it's difficult to think, okay, I might just need to really be introspective and go introvert for a second, really recharge alone, you know, yeah. get, get some space and then gain some awareness. That's the thing you figure out in your thirties, hopefully. Right. You figure out. Yeah. Okay. And you also, you also learn to like, it's so easy to take, like communicate. We'd always like have conversations where I would like, I would be talking to Chris and bitching about Joe, Joe you know, Joe's not doing this part right, but I would never tell Joe. Mm-hmm. So he didn't know. And then he would probably do the same thing about me. So we were like, We'd always bitch about it to get off our chest, but never actually fix the problem or yeah. tell the person that we were having an issue about to their face, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like you said, we were 24 at the time, so we weren't exactly the most mature people. Yeah. But yeah, you learn that shit. Like now we're at a, at a place now, like we're, as we're a band now, it's it's so much easier because we can say these things and, all right, cool, move on. It's all good. I get it. Yeah. You know? It's a lot easier now because we have matured. Hopefully that's the, and also the I hope think, anyways. And it's also too, like, you know, at that point you're, you're 24, right. Or 25 even. And it's a weird thing where like your friends put you on this pedestal, like, Oh, you're in this band. So, so good. You're touring, you're going to Japan. But like, they're now getting real jobs. Like, and they're like, they're making their like actual career happen. Cause college is over and they're getting good jobs. They're making good money. And we're like, yeah, we're still eating Taco Bell and, and, you know, living at home when we're off tour, you know? Um, yeah. So I think a lot of pressure gets put on you in that sense. Like, oh, this resolution better freaking do good for us. Otherwise we're screwed, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I could see so that you for sure. So then that just adds to the tension. Right. Yeah. And then you have expectations and you're thinking, okay, well, maybe we need to really put out a massive single on this record, you know, and then once, once, you, once you start writing singles, then it's you're you're in trouble. Like if you're yeah. trying to write the single, you're in trouble. 
Right. Um, because then it's not about you and you scratching your own itch, but then you're trying to basically create something for other people. And that can be a recipe for disaster. For sure. You said you're the lyricist. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that I still listen to songs like Bleed For You and Garden Statement. And those <laughs> words are still relevant. And Thanks, they still, they pack a punch, man. And I should have mentioned it before when we were talking about life and dreaming, but Bleed For You specifically, that was a different subject matter for that time. That was for kind sure. of ahead of its time. And yeah. I want to say I read an interview where you were kind of explaining the thought process and how that song came to be and how it was inspired by a friend of yours. And it's just a really powerful song. I still listen to that. And it still, it hits just as hard. That was probably, well, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was that something you were really trying to drive home at that time? Were you guys trying to write lyrics that transcended the genre a little bit? Because I feel like around that time, a lot of bands were kind of just writing a lot about heartache and this person did this to me and I'm going to write a song about how that made me really angry and sad. The breakup songs and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was a conscious decision to like, to be different. It just was like to write stuff that I was proud of, you know, mm -hmm. like not cookie cutter, not like, like actually sitting down and taking time with the words. Cause you know, when you're just kind of, when you're like, like everyone's written a song and you're like, you really know when it's like, it's that lyric's got to change. Like that's, that's not your best lyric, you know, and that could be yeah. better um, mm -hmm. if you're really honest with yourself. And so that was like just putting the time in. And when I say time too, sometimes it's just like it's not working harder. It's just like all the other songs you wrote kind of lead up to this one song, you know, because. Yeah, like the good song might, com might come out in five minutes or 10 minutes, but right. you did write 30 other songs last month that didn't go anywhere. So, you know, sure like take those ones that fall into your lap and believe you was one that was about actually two friends that had, um, um well, you know, the song yeah. had something happen to them. So I, I, I actually, it was just in my mind. So I wrote it pretty quick in that sense, but it was a, like a heavy topic that, uh, like the original video was actually supposed to be more of like a story video in mm -hmm. that sense. Yeah. But the label not strive through, but I think it was Geffen at the time. They actually wouldn't put the video out because it was too controversial. Uh, um, I could see that. That was, which I was like, I, I get it, but I'm also like, it's what the song's about. Right. You know? And I think it would have been a testament to the art of it. It would have really captured the essence of the song if it had been a story video. I mean, I can imagine yeah, and then a treatment like that really just accentuating the words. Yeah. And then like a year later, like, or even six months later, like Red Jumpsuit put out that one song that was about that too, or like controversial. And they did the video exactly what they should have, like we wanted to do. And it, not saying it's, you know, they're different songs and, but it worked for them, you know, it could have worked for sure. us too. Yeah. But I, but I, I also, I didn't understand like their point. They were like, they're not going to play this video. I'm like, well then too bad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it was, a, it was a heavy song and I got a lot of people coming up to me that were like, and it was hard, you know, it was like, cause like people would come up to me like, and they'd be like, that song means everything to me. And like, I know why it means that to them. And it's like heartbreaking, you know? And sure. like a lot of times girls coming up and just giving me a hug. And I, and like, I know why they're hugging me. And yeah, this is hard, you know? Sure. Uh, but at the same time, it felt good to know that people were getting comfort from the song. That was actually probably one of the first songs where like people started getting lyrics like tattooed on their, and you're like, sure. That blows your mind. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's got to be validating for you. You tapped into something that's very human and sure. resonates with a lot of different people. But yeah, I can imagine that being a little overwhelming too, because you're thinking, oh, wow, this has happened to a lot of people. And this is a very prevalent issue that we should probably talk more about. And even 
16, 15 years later, it's more relevant than ever, I think. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So resolution, you guys put it out, but I think you guys had already released the statement that you guys were disbanding afterwards. Is that correct? Yeah. Or am I yeah, yeah, we we had broken up before the record came out. The label's really happy about that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's happened before with other labels and other artists. There's yeah, bands that the label kind of has to convince to get back together to put out a record yeah. and they release it. I think of Further Seems Forever. Did, just they, that that whole, they did a similar scenario. I think Chris Caraba had already decided he was going to do Dashboard, but they had just recorded the full length. No, I'm getting it incorrect. He didn't want to record the full length and... I'm pretty sure Brandon from Tooth and Nail said, listen, I'll let you out of your contract. Just record the further record. And so oh, really? he went in. Yeah, he went in and did the vocals for it and they released this, it. But it was for the moon is down or or this is for the moon is down. Yeah. Okay. So he wasn't going to record the vocals. He, I think they had already written all the songs. They played a bunch of shows, but he was all systems go with dashboard. And he basically said, I'm not doing further. I'm going to focus on dashboard. And Brandon said, I'll let you out of your contract. Everything Tooth and Nail. If you record the vocals for this record. Yeah. Which is crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for us, it was kind of somewhat in the sense that when we were going to record the record, we, like I mentioned, we had been put on hold for so long that we finally got dates with Brian. Not that it was his fault, but just the label stuff finally worked out. And Joe came to us like the week leading up to it. He's like, I'm, I'm leaving the band. And, uh-huh. and we were like, it'll get better, man. Just come do the record. We'll do the record. Then we'll do the record. And then we'll go from there. Like, we'll figure it out. And, yeah. you know, it just, we all know what happened. Just didn't, we didn't come together after that. Like, it, and it kind of did, and then it didn't, and then it did, and then it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I've been there. Yeah. And then you really started focusing on production, right? Afterwards. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting connection here as well. I, it's so funny because like of all the people I've talked to, I have these interesting connections from back in the day. And it probably was just the fact that I was playing in bands and things, but I was actually in another band called the American life. And we went to record our first official EP. We had recorded demos and stuff before that and put out stuff ourselves, but we went to record with Zach Odom and Kenneth Mount in Atlanta. Oh, sick! And this was in 2008, end of 2008. And when we got there, it was the last day they were mixing that hit the lights record. Oh, get out of here. That's such a, which, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Small world. But I remember vividly walking in to their studio B room and we had just gotten there and we, I don't think we were tracking that day, but we were meeting up with them just to kind of see what the process was getting into tree sound. They were still and, down at tree sound still. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we showed up and it just, it was this big rectangle. It looked like an office building. It was very inconspicuous. There was okay. like nothing indicating that it was a recording studio and that's, that's just the way we like it though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. But I remember we walked in and we heard it and we were like, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, we were all fans of that genre and they told us, they go, yeah, this is the new hit the lights with their guitar player singing predominantly on lead. Right. And we were instantly hooked. You know, we were just fans immediately. But yeah. I think I remembered, I kind of had a pulse on lots of things that were happening around that time. And I think I knew that they were mixing it. You had produced it and engineered it and recorded it. But that was cool because we felt like insiders. I think we were probably the only, besides you, the band, and then Zach and Ken, I think we were the first ones to actually hear the whole thing. Because awesome. we just hung out and listened to them mix it. And it was really cool. That's so sick. That's so sick. Yeah. yeah that, was, that was a cool record. And they did, they did a great job too with the mix. Back then, I was very new to like what I was to all this. So like knowing that those guys were going to mix it, I felt really comfortable, you know? Yeah, like, for okay. sure. 
okay this 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 will sound like a real record when it's all done i know that <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. i did and it was a really successful record for them and for you too so yeah. what was that like was that kind of a transition where you thought okay i may not be in hidden in plain view anymore but i'm still making music i'm still collaborating with artists and recording and it seems to be going pretty well you had paid your dues with recording at that point too honestly man like the believe it or not the end goal was always to to be a producer like like the band kind of came out of that like really for me it was like don't get me wrong I, I loved being in a band and doing stuff but i always wanted to end up in this chair you know on the other side of the glass doing this kind of stuff so when hidden was even touring full-time i was always between tours whether i was working on hidden stuff i was getting extra work producing other local bands or other bands from around the country eps here and there or singles mm-hmm. and it just kind of snowballed, you know, and then eventually I got a commercial space. Well, I was a family friend, let me use his warehouse to set up a studio and which was awesome. And that was kind of right around the time of, like I'd already mentioned, like during resolution, we were on put on hold for such a long time that mm-hmm. I decided like, while talking to my friend, it, it made sense. Like, all right, well, we're not recording still for another six months. I'll build this studio. So when Hidden X broke up, I was already in my studio working with other bands. In fact, that's when I got like the the word that was like, oh, we're not a band anymore, <laughs> uh, uh, which is cool. But just to answer your question, like I was already in my eyes, I was already doing it full time at that point. I didn't have to get a side job. I was able to make money doing that. And so when the band broke up, it just was a natural. Let's just let's just keep going, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you probably had learned so much at that point from two different producers and engineers. And for sure. Yeah, and even like Chris Badami, who produced um, our first two EPs, he's a, a great producer. Like he did like Starting Line early November. He, I interned for him before oh. Hidden was even a band. Like I used to, I did like a year's worth of internships with him. And that's a guy that just knows everything about recording. Like, so like, again, I'm the, the annoying guy asking questions. And yeah, so you just, and, the, and this line of work is like, it's very much learn as you go, you know? Yeah. Just, it's just playing with toys until something sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then being able to repeat it, you know? Absolutely, man. That's cool. I, didn't realize you were an intern for Chris. I knew you guys had done an EP with him and yeah. he still records, right? I think he, yeah. I talked to a friend of mine, Rishi from Eternal Boy. I think they just recorded their full length with him. I yeah. I just saw him post about that. Yeah. yeah he's cool. not far from me either. He's maybe like 45 minutes away from me. So yeah, he's, he's still, he's still, still grinding. That's great. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Great producer and engineer in and of himself. So that's cool. So you definitely had some good experience watching different people kind of play with the toys. Well, cool, (laughs) man. I want to be respectful of your time. I really appreciate you doing this, Rob. This was great, man. Cool. I'm glad, man. It's been fun to chat. I wanted to ask you one more question. Well, maybe a couple more questions, but are you still predominantly production recording? Is that kind of your full-time gig at this point? That's that's a full-time gig. I mean, this this past year has been a weird year for everybody, but um, sure. Yeah, that's still my, that's what I do. It's amazing how much it's changed over the years, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm still making records for a living. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. And every time you post something, I, I'm always wanting to check it out because it's always a cool project and you work oh, with cool. a lot of really eclectic groups of artists and things. And I like your solo stuff too. The projects Thanks. that you've put out over the years, I'm always wanting to check them out. And just of course, new hidden in plain view when you guys released the animal EP, that was in regular rotation for me. So awesome. uh, always looking forward to what you're doing in the studio and things. I'm happy that you're still doing it predominantly. And it sounds like it really worked out and lended to the history with the band. And that really helped in that regard. The last question I have for you is kind of out of left field, but I noticed that you're a runner. You like to run 
it yeah. seems. And I was hoping I'm actually a personal trainer and an online trainer as well. That's kind of That's my awesome, full-time gig. And I had a bit of a, a physical transformation just shy of a decade ago. Okay. And that's what really got me to jump into this whole world of health and fitness and all that stuff and nutrition. Can you speak a little bit to that? Cause I'm sure that's probably a big part of your life too, in certain respects. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, it's, a, it's just a way I, I think I run 90% for mental health and I do it for even physical health. You know, to me, it just clears the cobwebs and just like writes a lot of things in my, in my brain, you know? Yeah. And also like, I think just a, a product of, and you're a personal trainer, so you know, it like. We just stare at computers a whole lot and, you know, it's good. And like, at the end of the day, like being a producer these days is basically a, a data entry job <laughs> with some instruments yeah. mixed in. Um, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of, it's, it, that's a way for me to kind of, to, to balance that out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You're saying we spend a lot of time internally rotated with our shoulders and our rotator cuffs. Everything's pressed forward, especially when you're in front of a computer for hours yeah. a day. And so do you work on the mechanics of trying to pull your shoulders back and really have good posture when you run? Is that kind of a focus for you or? I try to, man, but like you nailed it though, man. Like I have so much of the, like the, the upper back issues with my wife's willing to yoga. So she's getting me to do more and more of that, stretch out more. That's um, great. But are you, are you actually wearing one of those shoulder harnesses? I can't tell. No, I'm not. This is actually just a hoodie. It's got a thing. Oh. Cause my wife has one of those ones that actually pulls your shoulders back. That, I should uh, probably get one. <laughs> I, my whole life I've been internally rotating. You know, I remember high school, we had like the 20 pound bags with the books. Okay. Yeah. And you probably experienced the same thing. And I just, I feel like that was when I really developed that hunch forward where you're just right. all boxed you, in. What's your instrument too? Oh, I play guitar. So <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of like sitting in the chair, hunched over the guitar, you know? Yep. So yeah. I, I played, that, that I played was- Les Pauls and they were heavy. So yeah. we all modeled Tom DeLong and he eventually had a bulging disc that he had to get surgically repaired. So we all had terrible posture back then. Right. No, it's definitely something I'm, I'm conscious of. of and, and I think like you, I, it's funny you mentioned like running for me, definitely. That's one of the, the things I love about it is that I do feel like looser afterwards and, and whatnot. Yeah. You're getting those yeah. fresh cells to travel around the body, the fresh oxygenated cells. And plus you're getting the added benefit of all the happy chemicals, the endorphins, serotonin, norepinephrine, and all that stuff, all the hormones. All the good shit. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, man. That's cool. I'm a big fan of yoga too. I mean, I think yoga coupled with any type of cardiovascular process, yoga is great because it's a combination of strength and mobility. So it makes you stronger, but it also helps you move well and feel good. makes a lot of sense. The stuff my wife gets me to do, I'm like, I don't know how you do that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, I'm trying to get better at it. I, if I if I could do more of it, I, and I know that I would feel better. But I don't know. I, I think what it is for me with with running also is I can just kind of get, get just go. You know, like in my, you know, your thoughts just clear. Yeah. And also just getting outside more too because we're trapped inside too much. Actually, sure. I'm not even see it. Like my studio when I designed it, <laughs> mm-hmm. like unlike other studios, I just have a ton of natural light in mind because That's I was great. like the last. Yeah, it's it's a pretty and it's what's sweet is like this time of year. Well, it's a little cold today but I can actually open the doors and almost feel like I'm working outside, which is like my last That's studio. Nice. My last studio before I moved here was quite literally underground. So, and I was there for like 11 years. So. Wow. Okay. So here I was like, just give me, give me as much vitamin D as possible. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. You're just soaking up that sun any way you can. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, well, cool. 
Well, dude, again, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. This is, I was really excited to talk to you just because I've been listening to your band now for a long time. I was listening to you guys before Life and Dreaming came out and that continues to be an important record. And I, Thanks, my personal training space, I have my own little space. Oh, you I, do? I, yeah, which is great. I'm so jazzed to be in the position that I'm in because it's just, it's very one-on-one. I have my people that I've had for a long time. I curate a lot of playlists and things and Hidden in Plain View is still a staple. It's it's just a nice music to have that's not really, really heavy, if that makes yeah. sense. You know, you're coupled with bands from that same era, but like Jimmy World and bands like Amberlin and Acceptance. And oh, it's just that's always, what, it's- That's a it's, great it's, list to be a part of, man. man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, dude. I mean, like in my mind, you guys are, I think about the year 2005 and that was just a great year for music in general. But yeah, it's always nice when you guys come on and I still listen to the record all the time. We got some more stuff coming your way soon. So not to- That is exciting. That's really cool. Yeah. We were actually supposed to put it out before the pandemic and then, you know. Yeah, it all happened. And like, yeah, we were like, we could put it out, but like for us, like, the fun for us is like it's, it's great that people are like oh we love the record and listen to it but like t- to be able to play some shows with it is like what really like we're selfish right we do it for ourselves in that sense um yeah so we just wanted to wait so we can actually safely do that again yeah that's okay that's a good thing i think artists should do it for themselves and scratch their own itch and then we get to enjoy that right right cool that's exciting man i will definitely be checking that out and look forward to hearing more <laughs> whatever uh, that whatever yeah. yeah, whatever incarnation, you know, that's the thing I like about now, the barrier to entry, putting things out on Spotify, you have a little bit more autonomy with that. You can record, obviously, yep. because you have all of that at your disposal and you're probably re- recording on off hours and things like that, but then you can release it however you want to do it. Yeah, and you can you can release it whenever you want to, as soon as you want to, like, it's, it's a great, it's actually for as much as I complain about streaming, because I don't think that it's monetized properly. Yeah, there's so much, it's so great for like artists, you know, because yeah. you can, you can put things out in a day if you wanted to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's definitely the trade-off there. Yeah. I totally agree with you with the monetization of it. I hope somebody can figure that out one day, but, uh, <laughs> well, Rob, thank you again, man. Have a wonderful rest of your day and rest of your week. Cause it's Monday, right? So I know, man, I gotta get and, to work here. Yeah, dude. Well, I look I forward do. to just any new projects that come out and yeah, I'm sure I'll be in contact and stuff, cool, dude. but all right. Thanks again, dude. You got it. Man. All right. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. Hey.